When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The U.S. returns to the moon. Houston, Odysseus has found his new home. Plus, a cyber attack hits one of America's largest prescription processors. And we'll survey the state of the Ukrainian and Russian economies two years into the war. It's Friday, February 23rd. I'm Luke Vargas for The Wall Street Journal, and here is the AM edition of What's News, the top headlines and business stories moving your world today. The Odysseus spacecraft has successfully landed on the moon in what is the first U.S. moon landing in more than 50 years and the first time that a private company has completed a moon landing. The Intuitive Machines vehicle touched down on Thursday evening U.S. time, but as Journal Space reporter Micah Maidenberg explains, it wasn't entirely smooth sailing. The spacecraft ran into a challenge with sensors that it uses for navigation to help with landing. There was some nail-biting moments after the device touched down. Intuitive Machines, the company that is behind this, this operation, didn't have a communications link right away, so it wasn't clear what exactly happened to the vehicle. The company was able to basically patch in a system that NASA had, and it worked. Several minutes later, after much bated breath, they were able to make a link and realize that it had landed. What we can confirm, without a doubt, is our equipment is on the surface of the moon, and we are transmitting. So congratulations, IM team. That was the transmissions feed from Intuitive Machines as the moon landing happened. And Micah told us the occasion is a milestone for NASA, which has been looking to offload operations to private companies that would have traditionally been handled in-house. This mission definitely signals more private spacecraft landings on the moon. There's more planned for this year. There's more planned for the years ahead. Not that dissimilar from, you know, a company hiring a truck to deliver something. In this case, Intuitive Machines delivered NASA and commercial payloads from the planet Earth to the surface of the moon. And the agency wants to stoke more of those missions as part of a broader push back to the moon and on into deeper space. Social media company Reddit has filed for an initial public offering and plans to list its shares on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol RDDT. Known for its message boards, including Wall Street Bets, which fueled the meme stock rally in 2021, Reddit said it would offer some of its shares to its users and moderators in addition to investors. The company said the IPO will help it to push further into advertising, data sales, and analytics. We are exclusively reporting that Vice Media will stop publishing content on its flagship website and plans to cut hundreds of jobs. The move follows a failed effort by owner Fortress Investment Group to sell the digital publisher and its brands. 
In an internal memo viewed by the Wall Street Journal, CEO Bruce Dixon said it was no longer cost-effective for the company to distribute its content on Vice.com, but that it could partner with established media companies. And United Health Group has suffered a cyber attack from a suspected nation-state-linked actor, with the hack managing to access the company's pharmacy unit, which handles prescriptions. Dozens of change healthcare IT systems are down, and the American Hospital Association has urged healthcare facilities to disconnect from it. TRICARE, the U.S. military's healthcare provider, said that all military pharmacies, clinics, and hospitals worldwide have been affected by change healthcare systems going offline, with pharmacies now filling prescriptions manually. WSJ Pro cybersecurity reporter Catherine Stupp has more. This is the kind of cybersecurity attack that we see from time to time where a cyber attack on one company has ripple effects across the industry or across its suppliers, its customers. This is clearly affecting pharmacies all over the country. FBI Director Christopher Wray has been warning about uh, attacks on U.S. critical infrastructure, and healthcare is a critical infrastructure in the U.S. Coming up two years on from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we take stock of the cost of the war and how both economies are faring amid slowing aid, sanctions, and major military expenditures. That story and more after the break. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. Tomorrow will mark two years since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Lately, we've discussed the situation on the war's front lines, as well as Ukraine's push for more Western military support. But today, we're going to look at what could be the other key determinant of which country inevitably comes out on top, the health of the Ukrainian and Russian economies. And to do that, I'm joined by the journal's James Marson, who oversees our Ukraine coverage, as well as journal foreign correspondent Georgi Konchev, who was previously stationed in Moscow. James, starting with you, where is Ukraine, economically speaking, two years in? Well, the situation isn't rosy as far as the economy is concerned, but it is improving. In the first year of the war, Ukraine lost about a third of its gross domestic product. You had millions of people fleeing the country, the Russians pushing into Ukraine, seizing territory, occupying towns, tax revenue falling, military expenditure going up. But the situation stabilized by the end of that year. Ukraine retook territory. The front lines were were moved back from some big cities. And we actually saw growth of the economy of about 5% last year. Obviously, there are still huge challenges, problems with the workforce. Lots of refugees still living abroad don't want to come home. You've got people being drafted into the army, so you're lacking on the workforce side. You've also got a problem with investment, getting financing for investment, because obviously there's the issue of the war, which is the big thing that's stopping people investing. All right, you mentioned a few signs of optimism there, and yet we should note that Ukraine remains very reliant on Western financial support in addition to military support, right? 
Absolutely. You've had some good news and some bad news on that front in recent weeks. First of all, the EU signed off on a, a 50 billion euro support program, which is very, very important for Ukraine. But a 60 billion US package is being blocked by Republicans in Congress. That's a mixture of military and financing. So if that doesn't come through, that's going to be a huge problem for Ukraine, not only on the front lines, but also in terms of being able to pay state salaries and things like that, which some of that money goes towards, could end up having to sell bonds. So that's essentially printing money, which would drive inflation up. There is some good news, though. Exports from Ukraine's main Black Sea port of Odessa are back up pretty close to pre-war levels. Now, this was achieved by Ukraine's navy. They've been using naval drones to attack the Russian Black Sea fleet and allowed the Ukrainians to open a export corridor from Odessa. That's mostly sending grain out, which is a huge export for Ukraine. The economy ministry says this will add more than $3 billion to exports this year and about 1.2 percentage points to GDP. Gary, I want to bring you in on this. So while Ukraine is off doing that on the battlefield and in the waters of the Black Sea, its allies have also been trying to hamstring the Russian economy from the start of the war. We're actually expecting the White House today to unveil more steps to sanction Russia. Has any of that had a meaningful effect? Well, look, I mean, initial expectations, obviously, when sanctions were first imposed, were that these measures would literally crush the Russian economy and its ability to, you know, wage war. But that hasn't happened, really. Like, Moscow was able to, you know, maneuver its way out by, by morphing into kind of a full-blown war economy, doling out stimulus for, for businesses, for, for families. And because of all of that, the Russian economy, they, it shrunk initially after the first year of the war, but last year it actually grew by 3.6%. This year, also expecting growth, and that's because Russia was able to invest money into its military, but also was able to benefit from closer trading relations with with countries that have not signed up to Western sanctions. That's mostly China, but also India, Turkey, and other countries. So it was able to sell its crude oil, and that means revenues. So Russia was able to avoid the worst of the sanctions, but the impacts are mounting for sure, and the long-term issues are, are definitely there. Gergi, we are continuing to hear from folks like the European Union's Russian sanctions czar that Russia's medium-term outlook is less rosy than what you've described there, suggesting kind of that given enough time, maybe pressure will build against Russia's leadership. Is that the case? That is true. These pressures are building indeed. It's just we don't know to what extent and how quickly those things will bubble up to the surface. But the government stimulus has led to an overheating of the economy. There's a growing property bubble, which is probably surprising in, in a place like Russia right now, but there's, there's a property bubble that could burst anytime soon. Inflation is running very high, around 7%, which also means that the central bank had to raise interest rates to 16% to cool down the economy. You have a very acute labor shortage. That means a lot of businesses don't have workers. And sanctions have already affected a lot of sectors. There's been a lot of aviation safety incidents because airlines cannot really get enough parts because of sanctions for, for the maintenance of their planes. And let's not forget that ultimately an economy's long-term potential is predicated on its ability to invest in technology, in research and development, and that uh, has been hindered in, in Russia. I guess for anyone else just listening to all this and struggling a bit like I am to just make sense of really where all of this is headed and how strong the economic foundations are in Ukraine and in Russia, what should we be watching for in each of these countries in year three of the war, economically speaking? 
I think one of the most important things for Ukraine, obviously, is is how the war goes. First of all, Ukraine needs to preserve control of its territory. In an ideal scenario, try to take back more of its territory. Ukraine also wants people to return and get working again. But people will obviously return when they feel safe. So that very much depends on how the fighting goes. And it's also why Ukraine is asking for more air defense systems from the West. Ultimately, Ukraine's argument all along has been to the West, give us more weapons to finish the job against Russia quickly to get the country back working normally again. But sadly, we're a long way from that now. The war itself is also very important for Russia's economy right now and how the war continues. But from a different perspective, because the Russian economy has become, over the past two years, has become really addicted to war spending. So the moment, if the war were to end, however unlikely that that is as of today, then that would mean that the main stimulus measure for the Russian economy is, is taken away if military production, of course, diminishes. Then the other important metric here to watch is Russia's reserves, specifically its sovereign wealth fund. It's been fairly stable over the past two years, although slowly declining. But of course, if the West is able to enhance its oil sanctions and other sanctions, that would hit Russia's reserves and ultimately its ability to finance all its uh, projects. I've been speaking to Wall Street Journal foreign correspondent Georgi Konchev and the journal's James Marson, who oversees our Ukraine coverage. Georgi, James, thank you both so much. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. And finally, it is shaping up to be a potentially make-or-break weekend for former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Voters in her home state are heading to the polls tomorrow for South Carolina's Republican presidential primary, where she is hoping to post a strong enough showing to sustain her campaign against GOP frontrunner Donald Trump. But if she can manage that, her path forward from there doesn't get any easier, as the Republican nomination for president moves on to Michigan, which holds its primary on Tuesday. WSJ reporter Jimmy Veilkind recently traveled to Michigan to profile the state's electorate for our special podcast series, Chasing the Base. Jimmy, if Nikki Haley can get through South Carolina tomorrow, where polls have her well back from Trump presently, what would she be contending with after that? So if you look at the polls in South Carolina, and there's one recent one conducted by Suffolk University, you can see there is quite a clear cleavage when you consider the candidates while looking at their level of education. So for people with a high school diploma or less, 79% back Donald Trump compared to 21% who back Nikki Haley. When you ask this of people who are college graduates, the margin really gets tighter. It's 56% for Donald Trump, 41% to Haley. So as she moves to a place like Michigan, where you have generally fewer voters as a share of the electorate with a college degree, you're going to see the turf be favorable for Donald Trump. And on Michigan, Jimmy, this state voting on Tuesday, this is also likely to be a key state in November's general election. What did you learn about the electorate there? Well, we found a few dynamics on the ground. Speaking with some people who had made their careers in blue-collar jobs, they said that their attraction to Donald Trump remains strong. And then Democrats, in addition to trying to win those voters, they're facing some different dynamics, particularly one in Michigan, because the state has a very large population of Arab American and Muslim voters, many of whom are upset 
over the United States policy about Israel's war in Gaza. It's not clear whether Muslim American and Arab American voters are going to defect to the GOP side en masse, but if they just simply sit home, it could be a general election problem for Democrats in a state that they are hoping to win, which many Democratic strategists still refer to as part of the blue wall. That was The Journal's Jimmy Veilkind. Jimmy, thank you so much for stopping by. Thanks for having me. And you can hear the latest episode of Chasing the Base this Saturday morning right here on the What's News feed. And be sure to follow The Journal's live coverage of the South Carolina primary this weekend at WSJ.com. And that was What's News for this Friday morning. This episode was produced by Kate Bullivant and Hattie Moyer. Our supervising producer is Sandra Kilhoff, and I'm Luke Vargas for The Wall Street Journal. We will be back tonight with a new show. Otherwise, have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. Thank you.